How many of you remember your first memory? Like you have a concrete, like this is my first memory. Like three of you. Okay, great. I, I think I have mine. They kind of get jumbled together, right? Many of us were like, well, maybe this, maybe that. I don't know. Those blended together. Those kind of merged and formed a false memory. I'm not exactly sure. But one of my earliest memories, if not my very first memory, is being in my room, in my crib, which is like a cage, right? Try to cage in little Andrew. He's going to remember that. I'm in my room, in my crib, and my dad would wake up early. Oftentimes, he would leave for work at like 4 a.m. He would wake up early, flip on the light, and a little bit of light would peer through my my through the hallway into my room, and I knew that dad was awake. And I would get up on my hands and my knees in my crib and rock back and forth, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And I would go on and on and on and on until he would either leave and go to work or he would come and get me. Now, why I would do this, I remember I have this distinct memory of having this fear that in my closet, there was this, this cat that was out to get me. See, one of my earlier memories, it must have been, and I don't have a concrete memory of seeing this show, but I vividly remember Sylvester being in my closet staring me down, and I was like Tweety Bird in the cage, right, in my crib. <clears throat> this evil cat is going to get me. And as I was alone in my cold, dark room, I was fearful. And fear, it, it exasperates itself, right? It multiplies itself when it's left alone. We all know that. Whatever it is, whatever you fear, like those of you who are parents of little kids, you get this, they keep coming into your room or they keep calling you into their room because they hate being alone and they just need to be near you. And as we grow, we're no longer afraid of Sylvester the cat, but we may be afraid of finances. We may be afraid of like the political climate of the culture that we live in. We may be afraid of what will happen to our kids or our grandkids or what will happen to our house or our career. There's all these fears that we have. And, and the more that we isolate ourselves and keep those fears, inside. They just grow and they grow and they grow. See, presence changes everything. When my dad would come in and get me, I no longer sat in my room rocking back and forth crying daddy because I was afraid that Sylvester was going to get me out of the closet because there was a greater presence, a greater person who had me. I was in his presence and I was safe. One of the most common declarations in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, is fear not for I am with you. God tells his people, fear not for I am with you. And there, many people have tried to count these promises in scripture. Like how many times does God say, fear not for I am with you? And it's hard to, it's hard to like get a concrete number. People argue about the amount of times that it's said, but there's all these sister promises like this one. I will never leave you nor forsake you, which is a similar promise that God's saying, fear not for I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. This promise was fulfilled under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament by God to his people as God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. As he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. As he guided the Israelites through the wilderness in a pillar of smoke and fire. As he came to visit with Moses in the tent of meeting before the tabernacle was set up as they were wandering in the wilderness. And then God's presence would dwell among them in the tabernacle. He showed up to walk Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He appeared in the dark den to preserve Daniel's life from, by, by shutting the mouth of a hungry lion. He dwelt unceasingly among Israel 
in the holy city of Jerusalem, in the, in the temple, in the holy of holies. God's presence was there unceasingly in their midst. God among his people. And as amazing as these Old Testament stories are, like they're amazing, right? As you read the Old Testament, all these miraculous ways that God showed up to his people. And I remember being years back, I remember I was, I was, I grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota. And once I was out in the woods, I was wrestling through God, wrestling with God through some things. I was dealing with some things in my life and had a ton of questions and frustration and, and angst. It's all gone away now. I never have frustration and angst or questions. Like when we have these seasons of life, we, we often like, we, we, we want to duke it out with God, right? And I remember being out in the woods and I'm like wrestling with God. And I'm like, if you would just show up to me and speak to me like you did to Moses or, or to David or to Daniel or to Ruth or to any of these Old Testament figures, then I, it would bring me comfort. It would calm my fear. It would calm my doubt. It would calm my confusion and bring clarity. And guess what? God didn't show up to me in those woods in the way that I asked him to. But over the years, I've had to learn and relearn and remind myself that the way that God has showed up for me now in the new covenant is far more powerful even than what they had in the Old Testament. And that's true for you and I. Like we read these stories and we're like, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? And what we're going to see as we look at the, at the gospel of John for the next couple months, but particularly this month as we observe Advent, is that God shows up to his people in powerful ways. It's in this annual celebration of Advent, this annual celebration of Christmas, that we're reminded of this truth that God is among his people. Here's the reality. God sees us in our loneliness and our confusion. Some of you this morning, you feel very alone, very confused. God shows up in our darkness and our depression. Some of you painfully aware of the darkness. Some of you painfully experiencing depression. God shows up in our wanting and our whining. And it's in the midst of our rebellion and our rejection of him, our rebellion and our rejection of God, that he has come to make his dwelling among us. Isn't that an incredible truth? In our rebellion and in our rejection, God comes to meet us. The book of Romans says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so it's in this place that we're going to meet Jesus this month as we look at John chapter 1. We're going to look at John chapter 1 over the next couple of weeks and look at different themes from the first 18 verses. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 this morning. <clears throat> It's on page 886 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this isn't John the Apostle who's writing this letter. It's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own 
And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me ranks before me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known to us. And Lord, I pray that you would make yourself more and more known to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, over the next four weeks, as we continue this Advent series, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, each and every week. And we're going to look at different aspects of this passage each week. See, the scripture is like a diamond, right? There's, it's one substance, one main thing, one, one substance, right? But multiple cuts. And if you look at a diamond in different light from different angle, the, the diamond will reflect light and, and, and it would look different. And you'll see different beauties and different glories and different, different shades of color kind of bouncing the light off of it depending on how you look at it. And scripture is like that. So as we look at this passage, there's different angles we can look at it, different lenses through which we can look at it and see different things about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at this title that John gives Jesus, The Word. And consider what this title, what this name of Jesus means for us, a people who swim among a sea of words. I tried to figure out this week how many words on average we hear a day, and I couldn't figure it out. It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands between radio, music, scrolling social media, having conversations with people. It's overwhelming. And all of these words that we hear and that we swim among, this culture that's constantly bombarding us with new information, it can overwhelm us. And here, John is introducing Jesus to us as the word among a sea of words, which could confuse us. And as we look at this this morning, I want to ask two main questions. Why does John introduce Jesus as the word? And what changes when we know Jesus as the word? Why does John introduce Jesus to us as the word? And what changes when we know Jesus as the word? This first question, why does John introduce Jesus as the word? This is unique to John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't refer to Jesus as the word. They, those gospels start out in more of a normal fashion, kind of telling you what's going on in the scene. The gospel of John, it starts out with a poem or a song or a hymn. These first 18 verses, just out of nowhere, right? It says, in the beginning... There's an Old Testament phrase, there's an Old Testament book that begins that same way, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. See, John, this, this disciple whom Jesus loved, who, who he knew intimately, who he had this deep personal relationship with, John's primary concern for his readers is that we would get our eyes directly to Jesus right from the beginning. And that doesn't mean that the other gospels who start their gospels in a different way, more of a logical, chronological way are wrong at all. John's gospel is just different. It's not chronological. It doesn't kind of trace Jesus step by step and day by day. It's more personal. It's more relational. It's more intimate. It has this, this poetry language, these song languages, it, all the portraits of Jesus throughout the book, as we study this book over the coming months, we're going to see this intimacy between God the Father and Jesus the Son, and, and this intimacy between Jesus and his followers. 
And John, he just introduces us right away to Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He wants us to get back to Genesis chapter 1 and to, to kind of visualize and, and imagine this creation story. See, the people of God, the primarily Jews and then Gentiles who are entering the family of God who are reading this, they're thinking about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God spoke. God created into existence. And John wants us to know that Jesus has eternally existed as one with God the Father. He says, in the beginning, harkens back to Genesis 1.1, where, where these Jews would know that Yahweh God, creator God, was there. He spoke all things into being. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And Word here, it's not just the Word of God that created all things into being, but it's, he, he's, he's calling Jesus the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was there in the beginning with God, and he also is God. He's bringing us into this, this Christian tradition of the Trinity, that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, yet distinct. They're, they're distinct, different persons, but one being, one substance. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around, and you don't need to try all that hard. The more analogies that you try to come up with, the more it just kind of makes Christianity sound foolish, right? Like, well, the Trinity, it's like an egg. There's a shell, there's an egg yolk, and an egg white. Okay, so we worship a God who's like an egg. Okay, got it. Well, it's like, it's like the different properties of water, H2O. It can be ice, it can be Water, it can be liquid. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. There's other properties, right? Or it's like a, it's like a, it's like a mother and a daughter and a wife. Okay, I get what you're trying to do there. But what John is doing here is he's trying to draw us into this mystery of God. That, that Jesus is one with God. He is God. He was there at the very beginning. This, this man who we're about to be introduced to in the Gospel of John, it's going to attract the life of Jesus. This man, this, this physical being who people knew and had a conversation with. Yet somehow he eternally existed and he's one with God the Father, yet he's distinct from God the Father. What does that mean? How does that work? How does that change things? We don't know. It's a mystery that we've been invited into and it shows us that God is relational from the very beginning. At the very beginning, God had relationship, intimate relationship with Jesus the Son. And John doesn't talk specifically about the Holy Spirit here in this text, but throughout the book of John, we're going to see the Holy Spirit as a primary player in this relational connection between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit as well. John wants us to know that Jesus, this, this person, Jesus, who we're going to be introduced to, was there at the very beginning. And not only was he there at the very beginning, not only is he eternally existing, but Jesus was the active word by whom God created. And he is the active word by whom God recreates. As we go through John, we're going we're to see this terminology about being born again, about being made new, about being changed and transformed. And Jesus is the one who makes us new. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so he was present in the beginning, He's one with God, yet he's also distinct from God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Somehow Jesus is the active agent as God proclaims life, as God speaks 
creation into existence. We don't know how that worked out, right? We're not going to get caught up in the mechanics of like, did he spend thousands of years poetically and powerfully declaring and decreeing all that we know into existence? Or was it six literal days? Depends on who you ask. God spoke it into existence. God's word has power. His word brings life. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he's recreating life. See, if you know the story of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates by speaking creation order into being. And then Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters the world. And sin is, it's, sometimes sin, like, that's such a Bible word, such a church word, that sometimes we, you know, we have different categories and word associations for it. So just think about, sin is anything that damages you and other people, God's creation, Anything that drives a wedge between you and God and you and other people. Sin is things that we do wrong that hurt other people, the image of God in other people. Sin is something wrong and hurtful and harmful that's been done to us by somebody else that has hurt the image of God in us. And then sin is also things that happen around us, whether it's by us or to us indirectly. It it happens around us and it hurts the image of God and other people. So Genesis 3 happens, right? Sin enters the world. This, This damage on the image of God in the pinnacle of his creation. And so the rest of the story from Genesis 3 on is God renewing a people, seeking a people out, seeking to redeem them and restore them and renew them. And Jesus comes in the New Testament. John here is telling us in John chapter one that Jesus is the word of God who comes to recreate God's good order and creation and to restore what was lost. That's who Jesus is. That's what John wants us to know and pay attention to. See, in the, in the Old Testament, the word The word of God, like the spoken, proclaimed, declared word of God, it has kind of three primary functions. One is creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God God speaks, and his word has creation power. And Jesus somehow is the active agent who's creating with God the Father in that proclaiming act. But his word has creative power. God's word also has relative or it, it reveals. God's word is to reveal truth, to reveal light into darkness, to reveal the way that people should go. God would speak to the prophets and the prophets would speak to the people and they would instruct the people from God, here's how you are to go, here's how you are to live, here's how you are to walk. The law of God in the Old Testament, it was instruction for God's people. It was the word of God. Remember in the Old Testament, God God wrote his word on tablets of stone to give it to Moses, to give it to the people so that they would understand how to flourish in that life and society among their nation as the people of God and with the other surrounding nations around them. God's word to instruct them how to go. It was God's revelation to them. And then God's word also was to redeem. So God's word in the Old Testament, it created it revealed and it, and it worked to redeem his people. That's when God would speak. He would speak to create. He would speak to reveal his way, his truth to his people. And he would speak to redeem them, to, to remind them, Oh, Israel, you are mine. I am for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Fear not, for I am with you. And John here is now introducing us to Jesus as the final ultimate revelation of God's word. 
Jesus isn't just the the verbal declaration of God. He is the physical, tangible revelation of God in flesh. He is God's creative agent. He is also God's revealed word. So in the Old Testament, when God would reveal himself through the law, through the prophets, through miraculous signs and wonders, he's now revealing himself through Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God's word. And then he is the redemption. He is the word of God who in whom we receive redemption. And the last thought here on um, what it means for us to understand Jesus as the word. Jesus is the logos. If you're a normal person, you can say logos. If you're like a theological snob, you can say logos. You can choose whichever one you want. If you get around theological snobs, they'll make you feel bad for saying logos. If you're normal, you can say logos. It doesn't matter. Logos, logos, same thing. Jesus is the Logos. That's the, the, this Greek word for word here. You see it's capitalized W. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Logos. In the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. This means that Jesus is the visible communication of God's most intimate and invisible thought. Jesus is the visible communication of God's most intimate an invisible thought. God existed in relationship with himself, with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. Again, a mystery that we can't quite comprehend, but he existed in that relationship from eternity past. And now his most intimate thought is we want to share this relational equity, this relational joy with beings created in our image and likeness. And so God speaks into existence Adam and Eve. But Jesus is the pinnacle of humanity. He's the one who never sinned. He's the one who never ate the forbidden fruit. He's the one who never, who never did all the things that we do which separate us between God and other people. Jesus is the word, the visible communication of God's most intimate and invisible thought. So when God thought, I want to make humanity and I want humanity to be like me. I want them to be image bearers. I want them to be like us in Trinitarian relationship. That's how he created us, but, but we sinned. Sin entered the world. It broke us apart. And now Jesus is the perfect, perfect embodiment of what you and I were created to be. And he's the one who's recreating that relationship for us with God. I love how Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says it. He says, a person's word is their word because it embodies their thoughts. A person's word is their word because it embodies their thoughts. That's essentially what John is saying here, that Jesus is the word of God because he embodies the thoughts of God. He embodies the ways of God. He embodies what God is like. Or as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Or as Jesus himself says in one of the Gospels, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So God has verbal words, but then in the person of Jesus, and Jesus had verbal words, he taught as well, but in the person of Jesus, we see what God is like. Jesus reveals for us God's heart, God's ways, God's will. What, what, what God himself is like, we see that in Jesus. And He's the God-man. There's this, this interesting tension in John chapter 1 that we feel. With this holy, high language, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things that are made are made through him. It, he seems kind of other than us, right? 
He seems like God. And yet what John is going to do is remind us how Jesus is God, yet Jesus also is man. And so that's where we flip to seeing what, what changes when we know Jesus as the Word. What does this mean for him to become the Word? Well, it means that God becomes personal rather than philosophical. This word logos that's used in, in verses 1, 2, 3, and then down in verse 14 it, it was a philosophical word used often in Greek culture and by Greek philosophers, and there's whole theories and, and philosophies and heresies that are built around this idea of the logos, the word. They, they thought it's like the, the, this internal existential light that created being. Um, there's hundreds of different takes on the word and, and arguments in the first century over what the word meant, and they would sit around in their philosophical schools and debate what the word was, and what John wants us to know is that God is not simply a philosophy or a theology, but he's personal. He came to be among us. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is not just a philosophy or a theology that we think about and discuss and talk about and divide our churches over and get into our little camps. He's a person who we foster and build relationship with. And relationships are messy and hard, are they not? Now, not on God's part. God is consistent and faithful, unmoving, unchanging. But you and I, we are inconsistent, we are unfaithful, we are always changing and always moving. And so that's why you feel tension in your relationship with God, because you're constantly bumping up against him. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon once, has, he has this quote that he has learned to kiss the, the wave that has bashed him against the rock of ages. Love that imagery. The rock, it's unmoving, it's unchanging, and waves come and go and they hit that wave, but God is unmoving, unchanging. And this unmoving, unchanging being, this God who is wholly other than us, this Jesus who was there in the beginning, this active agent in God's creation, he wants personal relationship with you and me. He's not just a philosophy. He's a person who embodies himself with his people. He is... He is communicating to us that the infinite God experiences finite flesh. Look at verse 14 again. And the Word, remember, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's holy, unlike us. Glorious, holy, perfect, righteous, powerful, speaking all things into existence. But this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God who knows no limits experienced limitation. God incarnated himself. It means he, be, he became meat. He became flesh. Some of you love your bodies. You have a great relationship with your body. Give it a couple more years. It's going to start breaking down. Others, you, you know, like you feel it. Like my body isn't what I... It hurts, it gets sore, I don't like it, I eat this and I feel that way. And I, like the, the limitations of our flesh and the brokenness that we even feel in our, in our flesh, 
Bodies created from the dust of the ground with the breath of God in it, but this dustly, earthly creation, this this carnal flesh, it has limitations and weaknesses. And God himself, some translations say he took on a, he took on a, 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 a meat suit, an earth suit, like God himself in flesh. Jesus is, God, like this is the, the, the mind-blowing reality of John chapter one, that God on high, holy, other, worthy, took on flesh like you and I, and he experienced pain and weakness and limitation. So the God that we worship can identify with us. He can sympathize with us. He can empathize with our weaknesses, our limitations, and our struggles. Amen? That's what John wants us to know. This God is totally unlike you, yet he is just like you. He understands your weakness. He knows what it's like to to be limited, to be finite in his flesh. Next thing that John wants to see is that the invisible and unrelatable nature of God's glory is made visible and relatable. Keep looking at verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word glory, it's doxa, it means worth or value. And in the Old Testament, God's glory was, it was unrelatable. Like God's glory is is invisible to the human eye. We can't see God. John says that. No one has ever seen God in verse 18, the only Son of God. So like God the Father no one's ever seen. And throughout the Old Testament, we see his glory being completely unrelatable and it's kind of invisible, but he would show himself up and he would show up in certain ways like a burning bush or like the the Holy of Holies. There's the cherubim and the seraphim and there's all this imagery in the Old Testament of God's glory, right? He showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai in in thunder and clouds and, and rumbling, lightning, God's glory, shows up into the Holy of Holies, this powerful presence sitting in the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim and the seraphim. It's, it's this amazing imagery, but it's unrelatable. It's invisible to the human eye, and it's unrelatable. It tried to capture it in images in the Old Testament, but we couldn't quite grasp it. And here now, what John is telling us is that in Jesus, the glory of God is made visible and relatable, or it's made tangible. So God's glory, it does have this otherworldliness to us that we can't quite comprehend, but in Jesus, it has this, this very tangible example to us. When we look at Jesus, when we study the Gospels and we see how Jesus lived, what Jesus thought, how Jesus acted, that's the glory of God on display. The glory of God looks like compassion for the broken and the hurting, and the outcast. The glory of God looks like allowing your enemies to take advantage of you. The glory of God looks like touching the leper, healing the hurting, going an extra mile to visit the widow and the sick. That's the glory of God. It's tangible, and it's relatable. In fact, it's something that you and I through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this renewed, redeemed life, you and I can actually bring the glory of God to bear on earth, that other people can observe and experience and see the glory of God in us as we do the things that Jesus did. 
Isn't that amazing? That's what John is saying. That in him, in Jesus, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we have seen God's glory. This otherworldly glory come to earth and walk among us to show us the way of glory. It's now visible. It's tangible. It's relatable. It's like meeting a celebrity. I've met a few like C-list celebrities, never any great celebrities, but a few C-list celebrities. And you have this idea, you know, they're kind of built up in your mind, at least before you become skeptical and you realize everyone's a human. So I had this thing built up in my mind about these celebrities. I met them and I had, had a conversation with them and I'm like, yeah, they're just like people too. Imagine that. And that's kind of what it's like with God. Like, I know that sounds weird, right? Jesus isn't just like people too. It's not like the, oh, a celebrity and yeah, you're just like me, but also it is. Right? Isn't that what John is saying? That the word who's totally unlike you, he is elevated, he's higher than you, he's, he's better, he's glorious, he's everything, but he became flesh and dwelt among you, and now you have seen the glory of God in person. And it kind of removes this mysterious, like, who is God? What is God like? It seems so ethereal, right? Like in the, I don't what is God? He's Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's a, he's a man. He's a human being who walked this earth, who loved, who cried, who experienced loss and disappointment and frustration. And in it all, he leaned into God the Father to show us how we ought to live. And he died a sinner's death for when we fail to live in that way. Lastly, bringing it home, John wants us to see that Jesus, he, he, he refers to Jesus as the word and that changes everything for us and that the words and the ways of Jesus give clarity among confusion, confidence among doubt, and courage among fear. And isn't this the world that we live in? There's so many words being thrown around at us, by us. I'm doing it right now. God help me. Sometimes I wonder if I should just stand up, stop talking. We sit here for 45 minutes in silence and like, okay, I hope God spoke something into your hearts. Like the last thing that you need is for just one more person giving you their opinions and their hot take on the fresh new thing. We need a word from God. And what John here is telling us is that we have not just a word from God, we have the word from God in the person of Jesus Christ. When we are inundated with words, Confusion abounds, doubt is multiplied, and so are our fears. And you know it, the more news that you listen to, the more takes that you listen to, the more articles you read, the more opinions you hear, you just, the confusion grows, or maybe the arrogance, I don't know. The, the doubt grows, or again, maybe more arrogance, like if we get in an echo chamber, we can become very arrogant with the words that we hear, and we think all the other words are dumb. Right? Or, or, or the fear grows. And here John is meeting these people in this culture 2,000 years ago, very similar to our culture. He refers to Jesus as the word because in their culture there was all this debate among the religious leaders and the political leaders and the philosophical leaders of the day about how life is supposed to work and who's in charge of life and where life comes from and, and how the governments ought to work and how religion and, and politics ought to go together. And that, that was first century. Israel, Roman-occupied, 
but with the Jews like having safe space to do their thing, but also they had to pay taxes to the Romans. Like, and there were all these opinions, all these takes, all these words. And they would use the word, the logos, to try and make their point. They would, in fact, take these words that John is using and they would misinterpret them or apply them in different ways. And John here is coming and saying, there is a word that you need. It is Jesus, the Son of God, embodied among you. And rather than giving more confusion, more doubt, and more fear, he comes to bring you clarity, confidence, and courage. This doesn't mean that you won't ever have confusions. This doesn't mean that you won't ever have doubts or questions about the faith. You absolutely will. This doesn't mean that you won't experience fear. What it means is when you get your eyes off of yourself and off of the world, and when you can try and focus in on Jesus as the word, your your doubts will subside and you'll have more confidence in the word of God. Your fear will subside as you remember and you're reminded and you experience the reality that God is with me. Your confusion will fade to the background as you can simply grab on to Jesus as the word of God. So much of our fear comes from culture wars and the unknown in the areas of religion and politics or personal philosophies. It leaves us confused and fearful and in that place we need the word, Jesus, the one who creates Life, the one who reveals truth, and the one who redeems sinners. That's the person that John is introducing us here to. And every week when we come together at Park Community Church, we want to remember Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, God on high, embodied among us in flesh, living a perfect life that we're incapable of living, dying a sinner's death that you and I deserve, overcoming sin and death in the grave, and then recreating giving us a new nature, a new name, a new power by which to live. And so we come to the table every week at Park Community Church to remember the word who became flesh. This morning, as you come to the table, take the cracker and remember the physical body of Jesus, that God on high experienced limiting flesh, and that bread is there to remind you of his limited flesh, but also that he is the bread of life who conquered life. And then the cup is there to remind you of his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, that that he bled and his blood overcomes sin and death in the grave and grants us new life. I'm gonna pray. Worship team will come back and lead us in a song of reflection as we take communion. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you for meeting us in our weakness, for entering our rebellion and rejection, for understanding our loneliness and our confusion, our darkness and our depression, for um, putting up with our wanting and our whining and coming to make your dwelling among us just the same. Lord, I pray now, even in this moment as we take communion, that we would experience your presence among us, that we would know that you are here and you are present. You are not removed, sitting somewhere up above us, just kind of watching down and and mastermind this like a like a puppet master but you are here and present and walking alongside us we acknowledge you lord jesus may we tangibly experience you